0: the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my Whew, That was sad. Okay, let's do it again. Now, by the way, witnesses is the right word, just in case you didn't know. So let's do it again, and then I'll keep reading. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my Witness. Very good. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jerusalem is where you live. That's what we talked about for most of last week. Samaria is pretty much the equivalent of Pennsylvania. Samaria would be all those other states that aren't Pennsylvania. You know, they're they're kind of foreigners. Not just joking about that. remotest part of the earth is obviously anything out of our country. That's exactly the way it was looked. Now, the names are changed, but the principle is the same. Notice our witness starts where we are. Here's what I've said many times. If you're new, maybe you've never heard this before from me. God makes it clear in the New Testament. He has created for himself those that have claimed Christ as their Savior, true believers, a people zealous for good works. Not people that, oh, well, if there's something to do, maybe I'll do it. Zealous means boiling over really excited about doing beneficial things, helpful things for other people. But it doesn't stop there because guess what? And um, I hope I don't offend anybody. I I guess it doesn't matter if I do or not, but I've watched uh, a bunch of Pope things on TV just to kind of see what's going on. I heard a lot of social gospel the marginalized, and the poor, and the needy. By the way, nothing wrong with that. Some of the things we do here absolutely do that. But what I didn't hear is gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and trusting Christ alone for your Savior. I did not even heard any of that. But here's what I do know. That the good works that we do, that God has commanded and said we should be zealous for, don't save anyone. But here's what they are. They are the platform that gets that person's ear to the truth that we should give them about the work that Christ has done on their behalf. That's the place where it should be. I've said it many times. People don't care what you say unless they first know you care. That's right. Hey, you're getting better at this. Unless they first know you. Yeah, you get better every time. The point is this you can say, well, I know what I believe. I've trusted Christ. The church I go to, it stands for the Bible, and we do all these things. We support missionaries and missions and all these things, all good stuff, but until we actually get out of our pew and do something. I believe this is a good follow-up sermon for the mission conference. We saw all those things. Many of the things that we do, by the way, and I've had some time to maul this over. A lot of things that we do here at Garden Chapel don't bring people and pesos to Garden Chapel. You know what? Because the ministry we have reach out. They affect other people's lives and people come to Christ, but many of them are far away from here, on the other side of the world in some cases. But here's what I know. God has told us we are to be witnesses here there, there, and everywhere. That's what we're supposed to do. You want to know the marching orders for the church? There they are. It's not about us. Uh, we have to fund what we do here. I understand that. But Garden Chapel is a weird church. In case you're new here, we're weird because we give a huge chunk of what comes in here to reach out. By the way, I don't apologize for that. You can find our, our um, uh, budget and see what we do with it. Uh, that's exactly what we do. The point is, I believe we're doing what God asked us to do. But here's what I also know. Because we could say, well, we support Ben and Nikki Buckner or Rhonda Formanick uh, in Austria. Or, you know, we're getting behind the Brocks going to Japan. And we can say all those things. And God would say, yep, you're doing the right thing. I've asked you to do that. But what he wants us to do is when you leave this pew, see, most of us, our ministry isn't here. Part of my ministry is here, but not all of it. Our ministry is when you walk out the door. By the way, when you walk out the door, they put it there on purpose, look up above the door. It says something, and I can't quote it, but it says you're entering the mission field, something along that line. That's exactly what I believe. Look above the door when you leave. Because that's the important thing. In Acts, the church had just started. And you think Acts chapter 2, where Peter preached the sermon, and 3,000 people in one day got saved. You go, wow, great revival. It was. It was the beginning of the church. But it wasn't the biggest revival in the New Testament. Because we're going to see it in chapter 4 today. And we're going to look at it. So if you would, for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to look at Acts chapter 3. I believe that we should indeed expect the unexpected in our Jerusalem. We should expect God not to do hard things. See, a lot of times we think God specializes in hard things. He doesn't. Hard things are easy for Him. What God specializes is in the impossible. Resurrection from the dead, for example. That's what he specializes in. The things that we look at and say, it can't happen. Follow with me, if you will. It begins in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour, by the way, is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And it says, as they were going up, verse 2, a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb... Um, was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Here is a man who very well represents the human condition in sin. Helpless, unable to do anything. He hadn't done something stupid like riding his motorcycle at 150 mile an hour and crashed. He was born that way. He couldn't do a thing about it there was no surgery that was capable of bringing him his legs back. And so what did he do? There there wasn't a welfare program. There wasn't an entitlement program. What did he do? He sat at the temple where the people went in to worship. He sat there every day. Now I'll do something real quick here because I'll show you this because there's a number of words that I'm going to use. This is a model, like a scale of the temple in Jesus' time. You could see the direction. The court of the Gentiles is the whole thing. Didn't matter who you were, you could get in there. Then there was the, the fortress that was right there. That's where the Romans were. Uh, if you remember when they arrested Paul, they came down there and, from the fortress and arrested him. When they, they could see over top, if there was a riot starting, they controlled the Jewish people from there. Then there's the court of the women. Notice it's in the temple proper. It's the first place that you get to. It's where people could go in to worship God. They gave alms there. They put in their offering there, all those kinds of things. And that is as far as women could go into the temple proper. After that, only priests could go and they were all male. Then there's Solomon's portico. Along the eastern wall were, and I'm going to go ahead here in a moment and show you a picture of it. But there were these high columns and it was like a porch and people would go underneath there to be protected from the sun and the elements and they would teach and they would worship and they would do those things. The early church did that as well as other people. And then there was the gate that we just mentioned, the beautiful gate. It was the gate that went into the court of the women. All people who came to worship, all Jewish people who came to worship would have went through there. Guess what? Every one of those people would have followed the no-name lame beggar. They wouldn't have known his name most likely, but they would have said, Oh, yeah, we know that guy's there every day. His friends bring him and put him there. They would have known who he is, not knowing his name. He would have been a nameless face that they would see every day. It's called the beautiful gate because it was ordained with Corinthian brass, brass, and it was very ornate compared to all the other entranceways. And then there was the south portico, those little holes there where they would have come up into the temple ground. Uh, Solomon's portico would have looked something like this. Just a lot of columns, ornate, and they would just stand in there and uh, you get a lot of people in there. This is a big place. Uh, We're going to see how many here in a few minutes. But. We should expect the unexpected. So here's what happens. So Peter and John, they're coming along, verse 3, and he saw Peter and John about to go into the temples. Remember, he's sitting at the, at the beautiful gate. He sees them about to go into the temple. He began asking for alms. Hey, guys, can you spare some change? How about some change for a poor guy? You know what? I can't walk. I can't work. Can, can you spare me some money? He did that every day. I can't imagine the humiliation of that. Peter and John, well... They don't have any money, and they say to him, look at us. Now, I don't know, so I'm using sanctified imagination here. Sanctified means I'm trying to put myself in that. I'm going to guess that this beggar was really not proud that he had to be there. And so he probably put his hand out and kind of looked at the floor, all the hoping someone would give him something. And now he has two men come along and say, hey, look at us. I don't think anybody else had ever, ever, ever done that to him before. All of a sudden, somebody is paying attention and treating him like an individual, treating him like a human being. Hey, look at us. I think it catches his attention. And he does look up. And he began to give them his attention, verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, "And he, now, his, his, all his ego, all his emotion, all his mind just goes in one giant crash mode. We do not possess silver and gold. Whew. Oh, come on. What are you got? yanking my chain? But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene walk. He knows he can't walk. He knows he's never taken one step in his life. He doesn't even try. Here he has the disciples of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God working in and through them, and he won't even budge. Why? Why would I make a fool out of myself? Why would I even attempt? I know I can't do it. You know what? Think about when you minister in your Jerusalem. People say, you know what? Christ would never save me. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know how horrible I am. You don't know what I have done. I've done some pretty despicable things. God wouldn't, God wouldn't do anything good for me. So you know what they did? So first of all, point number one: whatever you have, you use for the Lord. They didn't have, they didn't have material resources. They had the power of God working through them. You know what? What you have to use is different than me. You know what? There are a lot of things that I don't do. Why? Because I'm no good at them. I don't have the ability to do those things. I don't sit around saying, I wish I could do this, or I wish I could do... You know what? I have so much that God has given me that He expects me to use. And there is some place, some way that you can use that. Nobody has ever called Paul Malfair. They've called Faye and said, hey, can you make a meal for somebody that's down and out? Can you contribute to the fill the freezer ministry. We want people to get well. We don't want them sick. On the other hand, plenty of people have called and said, my car broke. Can you help me? My my house, the, the something's not working at my house. Can you? I can do that. I've done it many times. I've had I call it garage counseling when I'm counseling somebody and the finances are a lot of times a problem. It's like, I got to get the brakes changed. Hey, bring it over. We'll have garage counseling. I put it up in the lift and we change brakes while we're counseling. I can do that. But you know what? My wife doesn't do that. You know what? I don't know exactly how God has equipped you and what you have learned and how you can use the spiritual gifts he's given. All I know is this, whatever you have, God expects you to use, and yours will be different than mine, so don't look at me. Look to God and say, God, I want to get out of my pew. When I leave here, I'm going to look above the door and enter the mission field. No matter what it is, it's the platform for spiritual ministry. Danita's sitting back here. She was here this week. It's hope within. Every person that comes there, if they want, here's the gospel. Someone will pray for them. Capital Area Pregnancy Center was here and they said, we're different than all the other pregnancy centers. They're pro-life. They'll save a baby. But they said, we're evangelistic. That makes them totally different than most of the rest of them. You see, that's what we want. A platform for giving the gospel, whatever it is. Nobody asked me to do medical procedures either, by the way. So don't even, don't even ask. You know what? Because you don't want that. I use duct tape. Or, I'm not duct tape. Uh, electrical tape to wrap up when I half cut my fingers off. Ah, uh, You don't do those. Here's the point. Whatever God has given you, you use. It's the platform to give the gospel. Everybody's different. And so the next thing is, but I offered and they didn't do anything. You know what? Get your hand out of your pocket. Get out of your chair. Because what did they have to do? They had to walk over to this guy. He's got his hand out like this. He's now looking up. He's expecting something in his hand. And instead of getting something in his hand, grab his hand. And the guy stands up. Now, I'd expect he's standing up like I do with my bad knees and i you know to shake it out and get the stiffness out. No, he gets up, he takes one step and he's leaping for, the, for joy and praising the Lord. Now, can you imagine the ruckus that started? You see, he didn't expect anything except maybe some coins, some spare change. Here he gets something above and beyond what he had ever expected. You know what? Peter and John would say, it's not us. fact is, they say that. It's not us. It's not us that made this person well. Here's this guy. He is walking and leaping and praising God. You see, you can expect God to use you more than you ever thought. Most Christians say, oh yeah, other people can do that. Pastor Paul can do that, but not me because well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not this. I'm not that. You know what? I totally reject that because you can do way better. I don't live where you live. I don't work where you work. I don't have the neighbors that you have. I don't have the skill that you have or the gift that you have or the resource that you have. But you do, and God expects you to use it just like he expects me to use what I have. See, we can expect the unexpected in our Jerusalem. Number two, God gives unexpected opportunity as a result of him working through you in your Jerusalem. Continuing on in verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple, the big alms. And they were filled with, notice, wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. Remember that big place where they teach? All of a sudden, there is now something. You know how this works. Something happens. People do this just by experiment. They'll go, they'll start pointing up here. And after a while, everybody's walking by is going, you know, well, that's exactly what happened here. They, his guy, who couldn't walk before, never had walked before, is now walking, hanging on to Peter and John, and they're walking over to the portico. This is a place where people teach. And as they see this, these people are going, Hold it a second. We know that guy. We've never seen him in an upright position before, but he's walking. Wow, this is something different. And so he catches their attention and they start gathering. Now, it's going to be a dangerous thing for the apostles, but nonetheless, that's what they're doing. They seize a hold of him. They go over there in, at Solomon's porch, and they were just filled with amazement. But Peter, when he saw this, replied to the people, man of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if our own power or piety had made him walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. But put to life, uh, put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which you are witnesses. And in the, on the basis of faith in his name it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, when you do something for the Lord, notice there was no great what we would call revival or spiritual thing. We don't know where this guy was spiritually, but here's what happened. He's leaping, walking, praising God, And he gives additional opportunity. You can expect opportunity when you start. You say, God doesn't work in my life. I'll tell you why God doesn't work in our lives most of the time. I'll put my hand up first. It's because we haven't done anything. We got nothing for God to use. Now I go, God can use donkeys and make them talk. I know that. He says he can make the stones cry out. But you know what? He wants people willing to do something. That's us. And when we do, it has a snowball effect. That's what we're looking at here. A guy gets healed, and now all of a sudden, people who would have never listened to Peter and John because they weren't a part of the religious leaders. They wouldn't have even listened to them. It's like they probably would have been against them. But here's what happens. is The gospel now gets proclaimed as a result. Hey, this is the one who you betrayed. You wanted a murderer instead of one who is perfect. He's the one that you put to death. Yes, your leaders are the ones that put him to death, and you cried crucified. You're all guilty. Yeah, and the Romans did it. They were more than willing to do it. Everybody was guilty. But this is also the one who was raised from the dead. You see, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's not the good works. That's the platform. It's what Christ has done on the cross, plus absolutely nothing. I've heard a lot about good works this past uh, week or so, but I haven't heard about the gospel. And when I heard about the gospel, it was baptism or some other kind of thing like that. Not about a personal relationship, totally trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone, plus nothing. Haven't heard that but that's what they did. As God gives opportunity, as you are obedient, then he gives additional opportunity. The result is we see a harvest in our Jerusalem, but it doesn't stop there because we'll pick it up in the, the third point And is this is like they go on. They're under the portico yet. And it says, now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Remember, these people did not come to hear a gospel message any more than people come to one of our outreach tractor pulls because they want to hear somebody give their testimony. But we're going to do it anyway, and we're going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to be there, and I'll pray with whoever wants, right? Smack in the pits, you know? And when they call me and said, I have a hard time. I'm going to counsel with them. You see, it gives one opportunity. It leads and goes forward. That's what we want. It won't be used by God. Make a choice to do so. Use what God has given you for his glory and use it in conjunction with the death, burial, and resurrection. But it doesn't end there, as we know, because it is by faith in the gospel, not just knowing some facts, but putting it into practice, totally trusting Christ. He said, you guys did all this in ignorance. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the uh, prophets that Christ should suffer has thus been fulfilled. I want you to repent. Repent simply has to do with change your mind. And the way it's written in Greek, you got to repent once for all time. In other words, instead of rejecting Christ, you need to now understand He is the Savior. He's the one that died for your sins. He's the one that rose from the dead, proving that sin had been paid for. God was satisfied, and that eternal life was offered on that basis. But it doesn't end there because it goes on to say that your sins may be, uh, therefore, I'm sorry, repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. These people not long before this were looking for Jesus Christ to come in and save them from the Romans. He didn't. He didn't come as a conquering hero on a white horse. He came as the Lamb of God, to pay for the sins of the whole world. He died on the cross instead of bringing a conquering message. And now they haven't still. And he said, you did it in in ignorance. But he said, there is a time when that's going to happen. It's going to be restored, but it's not now. It's going to come. And the Old Testament is filled with these things. That Jesus, the name not used, but there would be a deliverer. There would be a redeemer found starting in Genesis chapter 3. The one who would smash the head of the serpent. The suffering lamb in Isaiah. The one who would raise from the dead in Psalms. That person, in fact, is verse 24. I'm going to end this point with this. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. They announced that a redeemer was coming. They also announced that a kingdom was also coming. Kingdom still hasn't come yet. We're waiting for that. But Christ says, I've given you opportunity. You can get the message out. The last point, the one I want to emphasize, because this will take us not only in chapter three, but that unexpected, that very unexpected Pick up with, with me, if you will, please, in verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, let's talk about the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, but it's singular. And if you don't believe that, go to Galatians and you'll find out. He's not talking about lots of seeds. It's singular. One particular person. Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the Old Testament pointed to someone who would be the redeemer, who would be the, re, the, the one who would deliver them. Even the whole way back to Abraham, and you'll remember that from a few weeks ago. He says, for you first, God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways, from your worldly view of thinking from your way of thinking you can save yourself from your sin. And that is only by one person, only the work of Jesus Christ. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, not a select few. He says, my attraction will be to all people. Not all people will respond. Of course, we know that, but he's going to draw them. They may or may not respond. That's their choice. But he says, He's the one and only the one that can turn you away from the wicked ways. Nothing else can do it. No matter how many times you go to church, no matter how many times you pray, light candles, give money. It doesn't matter what you put in there. put anything in there you want. You can think you're keeping the law and being your best self. I encourage you to be your best self, but you know what? It's not going to get you to heaven. It's not going to forgive your sin. You might live a good life. But that's all it's going to do. But notice what it says, and now we're in chapter 4. And they were speaking to the people, the priests, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came upon them. Understand, I know how many people were there by now. Started with three people, Peter and John, and a lame man without a name. It's getting bigger. By this time, there are 4,000 people gathered in. How that actually happens and how it looked, I cannot even imagine in my sanctified imagination. All I know is the captain of the guard is getting big time nervous because he looks like this could be a riot. And the, the religious leader, the priests and the, and the Sadducees, they're going, hold on a second. We're the people. We want the people to listen to us. They're listening to somebody else. Hey, that guy's a fisherman. He's a nobody. Oh, Oh, he's one of those troublemakers that was with Jesus. They're getting really, really uptight about now. And so what they do, they come in, and uh, it says in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. See, they had a cold, dead, law-keeping religion. Not a living one. Not one that said, death brings life death brings resurrection. Death of a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ brings spiritual life available to everyone who believes. They didn't have that. The best they could do is the outside stuff. They'd look good, but that's all they could do. They're jealous, greatly disturbed, it says. And they laid hands on them, which means it didn't come and say, Lord bless you. Not that kind of laid hands on. It was grab a hole, drag you out. That's what happens. And they put them in jail until the next day. You go, ah, bummer end of the story, right? Not even close. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed. And notice it says many, not all, many. And the number of the men came to about 5,000 people. Can you imagine why they were greatly disturbed? All of a sudden, we go from a lame man leaping and Jumping and hollering, praise God, to a group of people. By by the way, it was bigger than 5,000. It says those that have believed. We don't know how many were actually there. The point is, can you expect the unexpected? I'm not going to say that because you go shovel your neighbor's snow, who is an unsaved, and have opportunity to talk to him, that all of a sudden 5,000 people are going to get saved. Or any other ministry. All I know is this. Unless you are faithful to use what God has given you, and put it into practice, you will not expect anything, or you should not expect anything. But here's what I do know. If you use what God has given, you can expect the unexpected in your Jerusalem. You can expect God to change people's lives. You can expect to see things that you never thought you would ever see. That's the challenge this morning. As the elders and the ushers gather for the Lord,